This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome scholar William Sheberg to discuss his work on the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. William, how are you? I'm doing fine this morning. Thank you for the invitation. William Sheberg is a rare book dealer in Fairfield, Connecticut. His scholarly investigation into the authorship of what's called the Big Book of the organization Alcoholics Anonymous uh, was uh, an 11-year project that resulted in his volume, or a book that he's written called Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. The publisher is Central Recovery Press. Let me start by asking you what the Big Book is and why it's important and when it was written. Well, the big book is what is considered the basic text still today of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the front part of the book hasn't been substantially changed since it was published on April 10, 1939. Uh, the book was written, uh, the conception of the book uh, was really 18 months before the publication date in October of 1937, a bunch of uh, what were to be called AA members, got together and said, hey, I think we should write a book. And 18 months later, they published it. Hmm. My, my book covers the, that 18-month period. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was amazed at the amount of historical, uh, amount of information that I found about that 18-month period once I started uh, going through the primary documents held in the different archives around the country. You started this project being a, a book dealer, I believe, after acquiring yeah. a pre-publication copy of the big book. What did you learn from that? Well, it was a couple of months before they actually published the book. They did it what's called a multilith printing or an offset press printing uh, of the book. And, and I bought one of those copies at auction. They're very rare. But the question, of course, as a, a rare book dealer is just exactly how rare is it? And when I checked secondary literature... Some people said they had printed 100 copies, some said 200, some said 300, some said 400. So um, I knew they had paid $165 for it because they said that in, in, a, in, a, in a June 1939 document that was relatively well circulated even on the Internet. So I finally got permission to go down to the archives in New York City at the General Service Office, the headquarters of Alcoholics Anonymous, to, uh, to do some research. And what I was hoping to do was to find the invoice for that, the, the printing, so I could find out how many copies have been printed. But uh, the fact of the matter is I, I've, I've never turned up the invoice. It didn't seem to have been saved anywhere. But I, I started doing uh, other, you know, looking at other aspects of, of, of how that multilith copy came to be printed, and I got sucked deeper and deeper into the story and ended up investigating this entire 18-month period mm-hmm. and writing this overly long book, which I thought was going to be about 250 pages, and it ended up with almost a little over 600 pages. Well, honestly, I, I was going to ask you that. I mean, they call the AA book the, the big book, but yours is also a big book. Yeah, we're, we're, actually, we're actually, in my house, we're calling it the bigger book these days. I see. Now, the organization is called Alcoholics Anonymous, but you're talking about going to their archives. I, I wonder, was this anonymous organization put off by your efforts to spell out their early history? Because you found some things that maybe we would be considered unflattering. No, people were very, very helpful and very, very accommodating. You're, you're certainly true about that. I mean, the first chapter in the book is called Challenging the Creation Myths. 
And the next 30 chapters, almost every one of those 30 chapters, contains some sort of challenge to stories that have been told over and over again uh, in AA um, by AA members about their early history, stories that some of them are close and some of them are not really that close at all. Uh, but I was looking at primary documents rather than uh, paying attention to or giving complete credence to stories that people told 10, 20, 30 years after the events mm-hmm. that happened. So all this information existed. It's just that, well, I shouldn't say no one had looked into it. Apparently there was a book written, what, 40 years ago that uh, was uh, another kind of scholarly look or detailed look at the creation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, that was a book written by Ernie Kurtz. It was published in the late 70s. Ernie was a, a Harvard-trained uh, historian. I believe that book came out of his dissertation, actually, his doctoral dissertation. And Ernie was given access to the archives and spent a lot of time down there. But his focus was, uh, his, his the scope of his study was a much broader, uh, he, he kind of traced AA from its very, very beginnings right up until the time that he published his book, whereas... I was paying uh, a much more focused attention on just a mm-hmm. just a fine just a year and a half period. Mm. Now the man who I think is generally considered as the founder of AA is Bill W. His name was Bill Wilson, and I gather that came out after his death in his obituaries or came out to the general public. And his first maybe it's a wrong word to use first convert uh, a doctor, Doctor Bob Smith. So where was Bill W. and uh, Dr. Bob, the, the, the main authors of the big book, or not so? Uh, actually, not so. I mean, today people talk about Dr. Bob as a co-founder. They call Bill a co-founder. Quite frankly, I, I, I take issue with that. I, I consider Bill to be the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, mm. Bill, was, Bill was a guy who, who had a, a, a fairly large ego, and he was aware of his ego problems, so mm-hmm. one of the things he had to constantly do throughout the 40s and 50s was to try and take the spotlight off himself. I mean, people considered him the founder of A. Actually, people considered him the man who saved my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when people approached him and dealt with him, it was almost as if he walked on water. And, and to, to, to counter that, that, that kind of adulation that he got, Bill started spreading the the credit around things, take, not taking credit for things that he was almost solely responsible for and giving other people credit for them. So that was the co-founder thing. Bob was the, the first anointed co-founder. That uh, The first time I could find that being mentioned was in 1945, six years after the book came out. And then uh, Wilson would talk about William James, the philosopher, being a co-founder, and Sam Shoemaker, the uh, the pastor of uh, Calvary Episcopal Church in New York, uh, one of the big leaders of the Oxford Group in America, as being a co-founder. And he just he went on and on, uh, giving credit to other people throughout his life. The fact of the matter is, Bill Wilson wrote the book, and there, he got very very little feedback on the the front of the book. There's two sections in the book. The front of the book is exposition, and the back of the book is personal stories. He did get personal stories from Akron. That was something of a chore to get those out of Akron, but he got some personal stories out of Akron. But when he sent off copies of the original uh, 
drafts of early chapters of, uh, of the early chapters of the book, the ones that go in the front, he got almost no feedback out of Akron. It was it was pretty much not just a New York operation, but a Bill Wilson operation. Mm. But there's another name that you bring up, and I gather the man unfortunately came to a bad end in terms of drinking, and that is Hank Parkhurst. What was his role? Hank Parkhurst, after Bill got Bob sober in Akron, he came back to New York, and uh, in late 1935, the first man he got sober in New York was Hank Parkhurst. And Bill and Hank were both uh, uh, pretty pretty type A kind of guys. I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall during <laughs> some of their conversations. But uh, uh, they were they were just joined at the hip. And 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 Hank was uh, Bill's often uh, in unfavorably characterized as a salesman. But Hank was Hank was just a promotion. He was a high pressure salesman. It's one of the things that people say about him in the early documents. A high pressure salesman, and he was always pushing Wilson to get going on this book project. So when the first two chapters were written, it was Hank who was pushing him to do that. And when Bill got back to the writing the book uh, three months later, it was Hank who was pushing him again. I'm rather fond of saying, you know, no Hank, no book. Mm-hmm. And, and truly, there would not have been a book published in April of 1939, nor the, the book that got published in 1939, if there hadn't been a Hank Parkhurst. Uh, the problem with, <clears throat> with, with Parkhurst's visibility in the later history is that six months after the book was published, Hank was drinking again, and he never got sober again. Mm-hmm. So it was an embarrassment to talk about the centrality, the, the almost primal importance of this guy in the process, because it hadn't worked for him. Mm-hmm. He, he, he got he got drunk again. But I'm I'm kind of fond of calling uh, if we're going to pass around the uh, the co-founder thing. I'm 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 happy to be calling Hank Car- Parker's mm-hmm. the co-founder who drank. And one of the issues that he uh, I believe argued with Bill Wilson about was uh, God. <laughs> um, and, and there was another man that you talk about in your book, but it didn't Parkhurst, wasn't he an agnostic, or he didn't want the book to actually talk about how uh, God saved saved me, or Jesus, or some other God figure? This is true. This is true. Parkhurst was always pushing, and right from the very beginning, for a psychological book. He, he felt that, that a book that was strongly focused on the deity was going to be a bad, it wasn't going to be a bestseller. And to be a bestseller, he thought it needed to have a psychological focus. And actually, Hank understood his own sobriety in terms of, uh, and his own recovery in terms of a psychological process. Uh, it's a little unclear exactly what his religious beliefs were. I think he could probably fairly be characterized as a deist, someone who believes that, you know, God kind of uh, uh, created the universe and then, then went away. He wasn't no longer accessible. Bill Wilson, on the other hand, believed in a providential God, uh, an Abrahamic God, a, a God that you could pray to and get direct help, you could pray directly to and get direct help from, a God that you could have an individual relationship with. And the book is actually, uh, that's the solution that's offered to the problem of alcoholism is to have a vital spiritual experience by establishing a relationship with a providential God. Hank was, Hank was always arguing about that. He did, in fact, get Bill to dial it back a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, in the first version written of the chapter called There is a Solution, which is the second chapter in the book these days, uh, Wilson originally uh, said that what, what, what you needed for uh, 
for your solution to your alcohol problem was a vital religious experience. Uh, by the time that got written in, uh, in early June of 38, by the time the multilith printing was printed in February of 39, that had been dialed back to a vital spiritual experience mm -hmm. rather than a vital religious mm -hmm. experience. It was mm -hmm. one of the things that Hank won the arguments on. Mm -hmm. And Bill's frequent use of the word God was often substituted for the phrase higher power. That was another mm -hmm. Hank Parker's contribution. And most importantly, uh, in two of the steps, it says, God as we understood him. And the as we understood him is in italics. And again, that was a, that was a Hank Parker's victory. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't Bill Wilson influencer, I think you even said this in the interview, by the Oxford movement, which or something, uh, Oxford something, and wasn't that a religious approach to treating alcoholism? The Oxford group, which is different from the Oxford movement, the Oxford group was founded in 1921 by a man named Frank Bookman, and it was uh, basically uh, back to first century Christianity um, movement. Uh, they were trying to be exemplars of uh, the, uh, the commandment in John, by this shall you know that shall they know that you are my disciples, that you love one another, without all the dogma that came up out of the Nicene Council in the 300s mm -hmm. and certainly in the centuries afterwards. So they were trying to be first-century Christians, as they called it. Um, and that was, that was a very religious um, solution to life's problems. They didn't pay much attention to alcoholism. They didn't really have a problem. Uh, there wasn't a focus in the Oxford group on alcoholism, although they did deal with drunks on occasion. But... Uh, that was really the soil out of which AA grew. Um, the man who brought the original message to Bill Wilson of sobriety was a man named Ebby Thatcher, a friend of his. And Ebby had been sobered up by people in the Oxford group, and, and he really approached Bill as part of his mission for the Oxford group. Uh, Dr. Bob, out in, uh, out in Akron, Ohio, was... Uh, his wife got him going to Oxford group meetings probably a year and a half before Bill Wilson showed up and sobered him up. Uh, and those people were desperately trying to get Bob sober to no avail. So there, there was this entire, it was, it was the soil from which AA germinated and grew, but it was jettisoned uh, over the months in 1937, 1938, mm -hmm. 1939, and even into the 40s there was a very, very strong Oxford group influence in AA meetings um, in Ohio and in New York. We're talking with William Shaberg about his book, Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. We'll be back in just a moment on the Historian's Podcast. We depend on your contributions to our fundraising campaign to keep the podcast going. You can uh, donate online, gofundme.com forward slash 2019-the-historians. Or you can send a check in the mail, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Bill Shaberg joins us, who's author of Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. Why is the big book important? Uh, it's regarded by some as the most important self-help book of the last century. Would you think so? Well, yes, that's a, that's a common characterization of the book. I'm not sure that, that, it's, that it's as accurate as it should be. I mean, 
certainly, certainly, I think Alcoholics Anonymous is is one of the most important spiritual movements of the 20th century, and I I think it's amazing that 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 uh, the documents are available so we can see the germination, the evolution of that uh, that that resulted in this book that. In the last 80 years, it was published 80 years ago, has gotten, helped millions and millions and millions of people uh, get sober and lead uh, fruitful, uh, satisfying lives. At the moment, the AA membership, it's an anonymous organization, it's hard to do these things, but AA's current membership is uh, over 2 million people, mm-hmm. and that's 80 years later. I mean, I, I, the, the impact of this book socially uh, in on individuals and and on on families and on businesses uh is 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 has been profound it's been huge and uh i i i it, the text the the first half of the book has remained largely unchanged since then there's some issues and problems with that in my opinion but but people are still reading it the the dust jacket for the current edition calls it the basic text of alcoholics anonymous so it's frequently treated as a textbook for how to get sober. Hmm. Now, let me uh, bring up one of those issues, uh, I think it was the word you used, that you mentioned in the early days. You had just told us the story, the man's name has left my brain, but the man who brought Bill Wilson to the um, Oxford organization, uh, Bill Wilson tells that story. But what you found looking at primary documents, he sort of uh, embellished that story of, of his meeting. Yeah, the man who brought the message to Bill originally, probably the seminal, seminal moment in 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 what turned into the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous was Ebby Thatcher, <clears throat> and Bill tells the story. The first chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous is called Bill's story, and it's it's Bill's own account of his drinking and his recovery. And when Bill tells the story of Ebby coming over, he says Ebby uh, calls him on the phone. Uh, and he tells Ebby to come over. Ebby comes over. Bill's drinking. Uh, offers Ebby a drink. Ebby says, "No, thank you. I'm not drinking." Bill's shocked. How's that possible? Ebby says, "I got religion," and they have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill Wilson continued to drink after that. He didn't get sober for two or three weeks after that. So that's the story that Bill tells. When Ebby told the story, and there's a, there's a couple of really good recordings of him telling the story, even one time in the presence of Bill Wilson, it's a much more complicated and, uh, and uh, detailed story. He says he called, and, and Bill didn't answer the phone. Lois Wilson, Bill's wife, answered the phone, and uh, they made arrangements to come over for dinner uh, a few days later. And he shows up for dinner. Uh, nobody's there. Then finally the people get together for dinner. He has dinner. Uh, not alone with Bill, but with uh, Lois also, and with uh, the young woman who's renting the, the, the upstairs apartment. So there's four people at dinner. Uh, after dinner, they go up to the second floor parlor, and they sit down, and Lois says to Ebby, why don't you tell me what's going on with you? And now Ebby launches into his story of his sobriety and, and uh, how he got sober and not drinking. And on the way back to the subway, Bill walks him to the subway, uh, Wilson throws his arm around Ebby Thatcher and says, I don't know what you got, kid, but I should I should probably pay attention to it and try and get some of that myself. Mm. Now, so so there's all these 
colorful details in Ebby's story. Maybe Ebby, when he one time when he he tells the story, I've listened to the recording. He says, "Listen, um, I know that's not the story you're familiar with in the book, but you got to remember, one of us was drunk that night, and one of us was sober." <laughs> right. And and th- and then he says, "But the point is, uh, it, it's the, the point of the story is really the same." And that's really what Wilson was doing. When Wilson pared the story down to, Ebby called, I answered the phone, he came over, he wasn't drinking, he told me he got religion. The point of Wilson's version of the story, uh, Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson was, he, he was, he, he liked telling effective, powerful stories. Yeah. And that was almost parables. They had to be almost parables. And, and so the point of Wilson's story is one of the foundational truths of Alcoholics Anonymous is that the message of recovery can best be delivered by one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. This reminds me of a, of a saying attributed to Walter Winchell, I believe. You check your sources? No, I don't check my sources. You ruin a lot of good stories that way. Yeah, <laughs> that is a great quote. But Wilson, you know, but Wilson was a man of vision, and, and, and he had this grand, universal, uplifting, deeply spiritual, life-saving vision of 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 a message of recovery that he was trying to tell people and uh and so i i mean i can't i can't fault bill for 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 packaging the message in a way that's going to capture peace people's attention i mean wilson wilson was a truly truly impressive man the deeper i got into the story the more respect i had for him i mean he was he was almost messianic but he was he was he was preaching salvation in this world not mm-hmm. in the next world. Mm. Because the key psychological problem, right, of alcoholism is that an alcoholic can stop drinking and not have any more, you know, go to detox and not have any more alcohol in his or her body, but there's this great compulsion to go back to it when you don't need to go back to it. Yeah, one of the great things they say in AA with regularity is is uh, you know it's 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 not stopping it's staying stopped that we're talking about right. and and I think I think Bill Wilson's great almost genius insight people always looked at alcoholism as a problem that found its manifestation once an alcoholic started drinking they couldn't stop and and they so they tried to remove alcohol that's what the temperance movement and the prohibition movements were all about was removing alcohol so they couldn't do that Wilson Wilson said that the real alcoholic, he used that phrase, the real alcoholic had no defense against the first drink. So that when he was completely sober with no booze in his body, sooner or later, no matter how many promises he made to his wife, his children, his parents, or his boss, sooner or later he had no defense he was going to pick up that first drink. That's, mm-hmm. To my understanding, that's the first premise of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The second premise is you've got no defense against the first drink except, oh, oh, wait a minute. If you have a vital spiritual experience, you can put that between you and the first drink. And the more you enlarge and grow that vital spiritual experience, the farther uh, that next drink is Mm going to be away from you. Mm -hmm. Also, I think you're doing a valuable service here. Putting the big book, uh, the text that kind of founded or helped Alcoholics Anonymous spread, you have, you're uh, putting it in its historical niche. It is written in the 30s, uh, which is when, for example, Prohibition ended and when there was a Great Depression. Did those two, uh, how did that affect uh, what, what was in the big book? Well, both of those things affected a, a number of number of issues. I mean, it's, it's impossible to read this book without paying attention to how the 30s 
uh, the economic and the social things uh, impacted it. There's a chapter in the book called Two Wives. Uh, the presumption, I mean, it's it's just by today's lights, it's it's one of the most sexist things you could possibly read. It's, you know, they presume that, that the man is an alcoholic and, 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 and the woman is the wife, the suffering wife. Right. Uh, but you got to remember that in when that chapter was written in 1938, uh, women had only had the vote for 18 years and everything, everything was different back then in terms of women's place in a society and how they were understood by the men and how the men were understood by the women. Uh, so a, a lot of uh, women today report uh, serious problems reading that particular chapter. And uh, there's also a chapter called Two Employers, which actually Hank Parkhurst wrote. And, and, and that describes a, an economic situation and a, and a corporate culture that just has, has was completely destroyed by the 50s and the 60s for sure. There's there's just no uh, no real economic reality in what he's talking about there. So mm. it's a very very dated book, um, not just in its social context and its historical context, but also in a lot of the language it uses. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of verbiage in there that that I know confuses people today. Mm. Now, focusing on on Bill Wilson, uh, he had a lot of problems, it sounds, throughout his life, and money was one of them, right? Weren't he and his wife evicted from their home at some point? Yeah, they were evicted. The, the, the home was uh, foreclosed on, the, the brownstone in Brooklyn, two weeks after the book came out. And for the next two and a half years, they, they, they wandered around sleeping on people's couches or in summer homes that people weren't using during the winter. And... Um, Wilson Wilson had a job in 1937, uh, but uh, there was a big economic downturn. Uh, the second the second phase of the depression was uh, March of 1937, and he lost that job uh, in October of 1937, and really never had a substantive job from that point forward. So they were always pressed for cash. Now Wilson was a, a really sophisticated man in terms of stocks. Uh, and, and, and corporate uh, financial sheets. But every time he tried to go back to work, and he did on repeated occasions try to get back to work, uh, people in AA begged him. that They just couldn't do that. They couldn't imagine the organization uh, surviving, progressing without his, without his oversight. So he, uh, he never really held uh, uh, an outside job. But he wasn't. Was he ever hired by AA? I mean, did they pay him or the, the organization? No, you know, that's kind of outside the scope of my research. I'm not really sure about that. I, I, I know Bill must have had some income either from AA or uh, he was getting royalties from the book. And of course, once the book talk, took off and uh, started selling well, I presume that uh, that was uh, a source of income from him. But again, that's. That's anecdotal. I, mm -hmm, I, right. I'm not clear on that. I didn't do any research on that. But in terms of your research, didn't you do some of it at the home? And it sounds like it's a nice home that he and Lois had at some point in uh, in Katona, New York, in one of the suburbs. That's correct. It's called Stepping Stones. And, and certainly at the time, I mean, one of the things they have there is uh, they've got three or four of his income tax returns. And he was making a lot of money in the 20s. I mean, before the crash... In 1929, I think he, he made twenty-seven or twenty-eight thousand dollars. That was a lot of money back then. It was a lot of money back mm -hmm. then. But by the time we get into the 30s, they're filing income tax returns for 
you know, uh, in the, you know, 1,800 and 2,400 kind of things. They're living, they're living hand to mouth at that point. And I don't know if this, I got this from Wikipedia, I'll admit it. Uh, Bill Wilson did not go back to drinking, although there was some part in Wikipedia saying at the very end of his life when he's very sick, he was calling for liquor. But he died from emphysema, which a lot of people link to the fact that he kept smoking. Yeah, he never went back to drinking, but it doesn't mean he didn't get thirsty at times. One of the one of the one of the most fascinating things I found was a, an entry in Lois's diary from June of 1938, where she's she and Bill have a fight, and he he races out of the house, and she says he he ran out of the house to go get a drink, but instead he went over to Hank Parker's house and didn't drink. Huh. I can I mean, if Bill Wilson had been gotten drunk in June of 1938. All of those millions and millions, right. just never, it never would have happened. Those millions and millions of people would have had to deal with their alcoholism all by themselves. We've been talking with the Bill Sheberg, William Sheberg, author of Writing the Big Book, The Creation of Alcoholics Anonymous. The publisher is Central Recovery Press. Thank you for joining us on the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.